Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Beer Jerk Podcast. I'm Luke and this week I took some time to have an interview with Soren, the founder of Eight Wide Brewing up in Walkworth. Uh, we took some time out of our brew day on the latest Small Gods and Eight Wide collaboration beer uh, to chat about Soren's story and the history of how he got started at Eight Wide and uh, a chat about some of the very special beers that they've put out over the past uh, 11 or 12 years. And huge thanks to all of you who support the podcast by shopping at Beer Jerk and at our warehouse bar in Auckland, the Fridge and Flagon. Beer Jerk is a fantastic place to buy beer. So uh, huge thanks to you, those of you that do support independent beer and support independent retailers. Anyway, on with the show. Hello, Soren. Hello. Welcome Hello. to the Beer Jerk podcast. Thank you. Thanks for uh, being here this week. Well, yeah. in fact, thanks for having me. I'm here at the brewery. You are. And we're midway through a brew. We've just Indeed. chucked in a load of date sugar. And uh, hopefully cool. the, the Eight Wide Small Gods brew will be out in a few weeks. Yeah. And it's going to be something pretty delicious. Yep. I'm sure it will be delicious. <laughs> How could it not be? Well, you've got a birthday coming up, right? Uh, I mean, we always have a birthday coming up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll be 12 years this year, uh, later this year. Mm. Um, but yeah, we just released an uh, anniversary edition of, of our iStart. Yeah. Um, so yeah, 11 years. Um, it's a bit of a weird number to celebrate. 11? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's the whole, it, it's, it kind of goes with a bit of our theme, you know, uh, when we uh, first brewed uh, batch 18 way, way back in the day, that was meant to be batch number eight, but we, we missed that because we forgot about it. <laughs> and then uh, uh, we made batch 18 instead. And you could say we also forgot our 10 year birthday and. <laughs> Instead of celebrating that, we're now celebrating 11, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there was stuff going on last year, right? It's quite, quite a last year, we, we actually opened uh, the tap room uh, around the, the time of our 10th birthday. Yeah. So uh, we just didn't really have time to throw a party at that stage. Just in time to get hit by the coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just in time. <laughs> have you got a good four or five months out of it before, uh, before it came around? Um, so. No big deal. Um, well, let's maybe go back to the beginning yep. of, uh, obviously you're not Kiwi, you're no. from Denmark. Yep. Uh, when did you arrive in New Zealand? Um, I came to New Zealand the first time in 2004, and then a couple of years of on and off, and then I moved here permanently in 2006. Yeah. Yep. And did you get straight into brewing when you arrived? No, I mean, uh, I started home brewing in 2005 when we were in Australia, mm. me and my wife. And she gave me a, a Cooper's homebrew kit for, for Christmas. And I started brewing on that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, eventually I got more and more into uh, to, uh, to whole, full, full match brewing and, and, and proper home brewing rather than just malt extract. And yeah, the same, same old story as most other craft breweries, the, the, the hobby just took over and eventually we wanted to start a commercial brewery rather than, uh, than, uh, than continuing uh, a career in biochemistry that I had sort of start, studied for six years to get into. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was 2008 that we started brewing commercially. So that was 2008? Yes. But before then, when you got when your wife bought you that uh, Cooper's homebrew kit, yep. what sort of what work were you doing? Uh, I was uh, studying uh, for uh, yeah, I was uh, doing a, a master's degree in uh, biochemistry, 
Um, I was doing it through a Danish university, but uh, the last year I did as an exchange in in Perth, Australia. So, do you find that 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 background comes in useful in? Right I mean, it certainly doesn't hurt, uh, but it's not something we use a lot. Um, um, I mean, craft beer is it's, it's obviously science. It's, it's a mix of art and science. Mm. Um, I think we, we employ a more artistic approach to to the brewing process. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, there's certain basic science that we do, but having a master's degree in biochemistry is certainly not necessary now. So, yeah, well, we're just having a bit of a chat about enzymes, yeah. and when I suppose that there are just various things in in brewing and in everything that. Yeah. I think if you have the base building blocks of understanding, yep. and, and I was chatting to Matt last week and had a bit of a rant about kombucha, yep. just how simple kombucha is, but how often you speak to people and they talk about it like it's bloody magic, yep. Yep. and it's really not. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose that's really uh Well, I don't think any, any brewing is magic in any way. It is fairly simple. People have been doing it for thousands of years. Mm. Um, I mean, to me, kombucha is more complex than making beer because I've it's never really layer. sort of gotten into it, you know. Yep. It's certainly a more complex ferment uh, mm. that they've got going on um, because it does a number of different things. It's not a single strain. Um, but yeah, I mean, all brewing is pretty simple. I mean, making wine is very simple. All you've got to do is squish some grapes and extract the juice and let it ferment. Uh, same with beer, you know, you just got to get the word out and add some yeast and yeah. off it goes. Or just leave it out in the open and the yeast yeah, pads itself. Yeah, you can itself. also do that, yeah. yeah. It takes a bit longer. <laughs> it's a bit more risky, but uh, absolutely. So I don't really know what biochemistry might look like, but but is that, would um, things like fungus and pediococcus and things that live inside your barrels, is that biochemistry or is this something completely? Uh, that's probably more microbiology. Uh, so okay. I was, uh, so, I mean, you, you can step down the ladder, I guess, in, in terms of sciences and you can start with biology, which is all about big living things and yeah. fungus. Then you can go to uh, uh, microbiology, uh, which is just smaller things yet, like cells and, and, and such. Yep. And then uh, my part was biochemistry, which is even smaller. So you're looking at, at enzymes, yes, uh, but not necessarily yeast per se. Uh, enzymes and proteins and um, things like that, you know, mo molecules. Yeah. It's molecular biology, really. Yeah. And then if you take a step further down, you get to chemistry where you look at the atoms and, and, and molecules and then you get to physics where you look at what's actually inside the <laughs> the, the nucleus and such yeah and yeah w all of those play their parts in beer right uh yeah yeah sure uh, but i mean really the main thing is to look at microbes and enzymes i guess yeah enzymes for the mesh but i mean the mesh takes care of itself yeah we don't add any enzymes to that um, so it's more about Keeping the yeast happy, really, is yeah, you, probably the main thing. You definitely do not need a master's in any kind of science no. to, to make good beer. No, I mean, you can, though. I mean, uh, certainly if, 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 you, if, you, if you were the, the, the brewmaster of a big German brewery, you would, mm. you would most likely have, have a, a university degree in brewing, uh, which will encompass all of those things. You know? yeah. It wouldn't just be focused on, on one, one part, it would be the whole process. And I suppose uh, physics is quite important with, I often think about the, just the inside of fermentation vessels and how mm. different it is. Uh, we spoke before about some clone brewing, yeah. but it's actually impossible to clone a beer because just environmental factors yeah. and 
well, there's everything, right? Yeah, so yeah. You, you can't just, even though you might add the correct minerals to a base water, yeah. it's not going to be the same. No, no, not necessarily, no. I mean, um, I mean, I guess if, you, if you're trying to to uh, recreate the, uh, a good example is it's, it's, it's the Burton water that uh, people mm. uh, used to recreate for, for, for making IPAs, but um, uh, it's high in sulfates and such, and so you would add calcium sulfate to it, and you would add uh, um, other, other minerals to the water to get the same composition, but I guess if you go down to the nitty gritty and you would see that you're really only adding four or five ions to the to the water mm. and uh, you're forgetting about everything else that is there in trace elements, uh, which may or may not affect the flavor much at all. Um, but yeah, I guess you can never fully recreate the water that, that you're trying to target, but you can get very close. So you decided you wanted to be a brewer yeah. and you went and got a job working as a brewer. Mm -hmm. Was that pretty easy or was it a lot of sort of slogging and... Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the original, original idea me and my wife had was to uh, start a little brew pub in, in, a, in a beachside town somewhere. Yep. Um, in probably in the North Island. Um, but yeah, I didn't have any commercial experience in brewing. I'd only been brewing in the kitchen really. Uh, mm. I'd really only just gotten into to full mash brewing. Um, yeah, so to get some commercial experience, I basically emailed every single craft brewery in New Zealand at the time, back in 2007, 2008, uh, and asked if anybody needed a hand for three months. And if it's gonna be free labor, I just wanted to come around and just hang out and just uh, see, see how beer was made on a commercial scale. Uh, and yeah, Renaissance down in Blenheim, uh, they were one of the first to, to reply, and one of the only ones to reply, if I recall correctly. And said, yeah, we were actually looking for someone right now, so just come on down. And yeah, we just got in the car and drove down there. Um, they did actually pay me, even though I said that I didn't need to be paid. They were very generous and paid me minimum wage, which I was very happy for. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the plan was to stay there for three months. Um, but yeah, after, after a couple of months, we realized that uh, we didn't have the, the skills or the or the expertise or the money to uh, to start up a brewery yeah, it's not from cheap. scratch. No, um, and it was right in the beginning of the the financial crisis as well, or mm. in the middle of it. So uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the 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 logic thing was not to spend all our money on that and jump in the deep end. Um, and instead, uh, Renaissance had spare capacity, and they were looking for for a full time brewer. So mm. uh, we worked out a deal where I stayed on there as a brewer, working for them during the daytime. And then uh, when they didn't use their tanks, uh, I could use their, their equipment to, to make our own beer. And yeah, that's what we did for the first five years. Was that, that quite a new idea back then? Because nowadays contract brewing and gypsy brewing and everything is just- Yeah, so no, common. it was. It was uh, we were definitely one of the first ones. So Yeasty Boys had already started a year earlier. Yeah. Uh, and that's certainly, uh, was an inspiration to see that uh, that you didn't necessarily need to have your own brewery. Yeah, were they and brewing in Invercargill then? Invercargill, yeah. Yep. yeah. And then also looking overseas, looking back to Denmark, there were people like McKellar that were really championing the the contract brewing um, uh, uh, yep. method, method of getting to market. Yeah, Mikola, Omnipolo, 
yeah. there was yeah just some some big names in northern yeah, europe yeah. that were yeah. the contract ring at the time yeah but uh, i mean it was slightly different for us i guess because uh uh i mean yes it wasn't our own brewery and technically it was contract brewing but i did all the work myself but you were the brewer yeah you, yeah, you yeah. Knew so the i made the beer myself and uh um we didn't just hand over the the recipe to to another brewery to to get it done yeah Yep, so like uh, Isthmus these days. Yeah. Hamish, yes. obviously, yeah, the head brewer at Deep Creek, and he, yeah. he is Isthmus too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, smart way to get going. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it worked out really well. I mean, it worked out for us, and it worked out for Renaissance as well. It's, you know, it's capacity that's been filled for them, which is always good in a brewery. You must have been working some long weeks. No, I mean, no, not really. Ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. No, I take that back. Yes, <laughs> yes, it was some long weeks. Uh, but it's not like, I mean, I wasn't working full-time for Renaissance. Oh, okay. I was probably only brewing maybe three days a week max. Ah, oh, yeah. Two or three days a week, and then I'll do uh, one of our brews every second week, maybe in the, the first couple of years. Eventually, that got got to be every week that we were doing a brew. Uh, but yeah, then just running a business on the side, and then uh, yeah, we had a we had our first child six months into that project, mm. and the next one. Uh, 18 months later huh. <laughs> uh, and my wife was still working uh, um, when we started the brewery she was still working full-time as a physio yeah and then after the kids she, uh, she dropped back to half-time but yeah we were we were both working and having two children and having a new business yeah. and having another job <laughs> it was some busy years for sure yeah well, but it was good fun days, it's, in one way it doesn't feel like long at all no 12 years ago oh. but in other ways that the beer scene in New Zealand was completely different. Oh hell yeah, yeah. There yeah. weren't there weren't many craft brewers around back then. No, I think uh, when we started, from memory, I think uh, there was definitely less than a hundred breweries, maybe fifty or seventy-five. I want to yeah. say there was back then. So still quite a few, you know. Not not it wasn't unheard of. Um, and the and the big names in craft beer that were doing interesting things would have been. Uh, the big names obviously were Emerson's was there. Yeah. Uh, Three Boys Renaissance. Um, Epic had just started doing the big IPAs just a few years earlier. Yeah. Uh, oh, not big IPAs, but big PLLs at least. Hoppy, hoppy beers, American inspired beers. Yeah. The, the scene back then, before before Epic started doing that, the scene was very European. Mm. There was a lot of uh, English beers and German beers and Belgian beers. Yeah. Um, but brewed with the New Zealand ingredients mainly, New Zealand hops. Uh, yeah, no, I mean Renaissance was definitely one of those as well. Um, most of what they did was British inspired. Apart from they, they did have an American pale ale. That was, mm. I think people forget about, but it was definitely a bit of a trailblazer back in, back in those days. So there were less breweries around, but also far fewer people were drinking good beer back then, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So was it, uh, was it hard for you to shift kegs? Um, no, it was always quite easy for us. I mean, we only brewed what we knew we could sell sort of fairly quick. Mm. We didn't... Uh, and because we were contract brewing, we didn't we didn't have to brew a certain volume to survive. You yeah, it's a great. I benefit. mean, every every kick that we made was making a profit. You know, so yeah. it's not like we had big overheads to cover. Um, yeah. So we could sort of just make what what we wanted to make and what we thought people would buy as well. Mm. Um, so the first few years uh, were, you know, everything just sort of went by word of mouth, really. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose it's with with brewing on somebody else's kit, the, the profit margins are way smaller 
but also of yes. course the risk is yes. way yeah. smaller. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's um, and yeah. that's so I suppose when you decided that it was time to get your own kit and set up your own brewery. Yeah, so we did that as I said for uh, for five years, um, and towards the end of it, uh, Renaissance was growing and we were growing, so they didn't have any more spare capacity. Yeah, uh, we still brewed there, um, probably every week or every second week at least. Yeah, uh, and then um, uh, but then we also brewed at Steam, we brewed at Tuatara, and we brewed at a, a, what was then called Four Four Avenues down in Christchurch. I believe now has finally landed on Pomeroy's Brewing. Yeah. <laughs> out, out, out in the back, the back of Pomeroy's pub. Um, so yeah, we were brewing at four different breweries. Uh, we had three different warehouses uh, around the country and it was just a logistical nightmare. Yeah, and headache. I mean, obviously I always wanted to have our own brewery. Uh, it was always a dream. Um, and yeah, after five years, it was just time. And how did you decide where to base a wired so i mean uh, i mean as i mentioned we had two kits in the in the beginning of a wired so uh, they were still very very small when mm. uh, when we decided to build the brewery uh and we didn't have any family down in, in blenheim or in the south island at all um my wife's family is all from from the upper north island um so yeah we sort of wanted to move up to this general area um we didn't want to live in Auckland city um and I mean, we would have liked to live somewhere like the Coromandel or further up north, maybe, or something mm. a bit more idyllic. But it's it's hard having a, a shipping-intensive business uh, that far from a main center. So we sort of looked in the upper, the northern Auckland region. Yeah. And we more or less just looked at the map and we thought, yeah, that's that looks nice. <laughs> yeah. Matakana area, area looks pretty nice. Uh, let's let's go up there and see what happens. So. Uh, so uh, me and me and the family moved moved up here uh, in. Gee, I forget. It must have been 2014. Yeah, it must have been 2014. Uh, we moved up here to scout out the area and set up the brewery. And uh, Jason Jason Bathgate, uh, who was working for a state in Blenheim and maintained the the brewing there at Renaissance, uh, maintained all the barrels that we had built up over the years. Um, and it took us almost a year before, uh, it took us at least six months before we found this building to mm. lease. We leased it straight away uh, and then we ordered the brewery and the brewery uh, arrived and got installed in early 2015. And then, uh, yeah, Jason moved up with, with us for that. So Jason was brewing here for a while? Yeah, yeah, he was brewing for... Uh, it must have been a year. Yep. And then uh, him and Andrew had the horrible accident down here. Um, yeah. And yeah, then he moved on to McLeod's after that. And he's doing good stuff at McLeod's? Yeah, he's doing amazing stuff up there. Which is... So are those guys about half an hour north of here? Uh, it's probably close to an hour. Okay, yeah. 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 So this location, we're, we're less than an hour from Auckland. Yeah. So yeah, on a good day, you can get to the Harbour Bridge in half hour, 35 minutes. Yeah. If there's no traffic. Yeah, not bad at all. Yeah. And yeah, it's obviously beautiful around here. Have you yeah, it's a bit live? more quiet up here. <laughs> yeah. Traf traffic is only really bad on, on Fridays. Uh, it, it was nice driving up this morning uh, and sort of seeing the block traffic coming the other way mm -hmm. at 8 a.m. And I was just like heading free. Yeah, yeah. So as long as you can go uh, against the traffic, that's that's always good. 
some of the more iconic beers that you've released over the years. Yeah. Uh, I suppose would Hopwired have been? Yeah, I would certainly put Hopwired on that list. Yeah. Yeah. So Hopwired was the second beer that we brewed. The first beer we brewed was a uh, Rewired Brown Ale. Ah. Uh, but the week after we brewed that, we brewed Hopwired. Yep. So they were more or less brewed at the same time. Um, and that was a very well received beer. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I mean, Hopwide was one of uh, one of the original IPAs in New Zealand. I want to say, mm. Epic Epic had already done Armageddon yep. uh, a couple of times, but only I believe only in cakes, not not in packaged product. Because um, that was launched at the West Coast IPA Challenge, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Armageddon obviously is an American IPA; it's all American hops. Yeah. Uh, what I wanted to do was uh, something similar to that, but all New Zealand hops. Mm. So yeah, we. Uh, and it was actually meant it was meant to be the the homebrew trials that i made of that was always 100 percent nelson soven yeah and the idea was to make a single hop nelson soven uh ipa yeah uh but then uh right before we brewed hop wired uh mckellar made a single hop nelson soven oh. uh and yeah i mean back in that day you know i mean new beers were were not that common so i thought let's not copy that entirely uh, we'll put something else in there. Uh, and also, uh, New Zealand hops had re- run out of soven. So they only had enough soven for half of the hop bill. Uh, and then the other ha- half, we used Motoega. And it turned out to be a really a really good combo. So we stuck with it. So has the recipe changed at all over the years? Very, very little. It's, mm. uh, I mean, mo- other beers we will sort of tweak along the way. Uh, the only thing we've done to Hopwad is uh, we've added just a small addition of Rewaka in the, in the dry hop. Mm. But other than that, it's, it's the same as when we started, yeah. Which also means, I mean, it's sort of been... Back then, back then it was an extremely hoppy beer. Uh, I definitely think when we first brewed it, it was the hoppiest beer ever made in New Zealand. Um, but obviously nowadays, it's it's not. You know, if, if you look at the recipe of, of Hopwad compared to a... To a to a modern hazy IPA, it's uh, the dry hop is probably about half of, of what it is, and back then the dry hop that we added into Hopwife was unheard of. <laughs> it's <laughs> it was, so funny, hey! Yeah. It's, and it's, all, it's, it's only eleven and a half years ago. The beer stayed the same. It's just we've changed yeah. the taste buds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, you must have had people drinking that beer that just thought it was just incredibly bitter people must have just been quite overwhelmed uh, uh yes and no i mean hot water uh, because hot water is, is still an old school ipa it's quite malty as well yeah um, so it's uh, we got a bit of munich malt and crystal malt in there mm. uh and it's uh it's 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 got balance to 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 counter the bitterness uh but yeah i mean obviously for sure compared to a to a to a, to a spade style line red then yes absolutely but compared to an american ipa no i think it's more balanced than than an old school West Coast IPA, mm. which is obviously dry and intensely bitter. When did you brew Iced Out for the first time? So Iced Out was uh, batch number six that we ever did. Um, oh. And that was brewed in, um, I want to say April or May, 2010. And what was your idea behind that? Uh, again, I mean, uh, it was uh, it was the kind of beer that you just couldn't get in New Zealand. You couldn't get Imperial Stouts, or you mm. very very little you could. Um, there was, uh, I want to say, there was only one brewery that I know of that had an Imperial Stout back then, and that was uh, Pink Elephant, 
which was yeah. an obscure little brewery out of Blenheim as well. Yeah. Uh, Roger Pink was making some really amazing English style or English inspired beers, but much bigger than anything you would ever see in England. Like its imperial style was 12%, mm. uh, which is, I think, I think is quite rare to see in, in England, or at least. Um, Back, yeah, in the, the, back in the day it was yeah the imperial stouts I used to drink on handball were maybe yeah. 8% yeah exactly yeah. it would yeah. be an imperial stout called Attila and yeah. like oh my god it's but also <laughs> we're drinking massive pint glasses of it so yeah, it's yeah. a bit different to a 330 bottle yeah 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 but yeah that's an interesting memory Roger Pink he did a um, a really good barley wine I remember yeah yeah so he did a lot of that stuff like strong English sales and barley wines and imperial stout and, yeah. and whatnot. and uh, so I stout you've just reimagined it for uh for the 11th anniversary yes yeah yeah so uh, it's uh, so we have you brewed an, uh, an anniversary batch of that um uh, which is more or less the exact same beer just bigger uh, so we just added more malt to it really and, and made it bigger were there any issues with uh the yeast dying at a certain alcohol level or can the yeast survive to 15 percent? as long as you coach the yeast uh it'll be okay but we did add so we added uh, the normal ale yeast uh a lager yeast which should be a little bit more sturdy and yep. then we added a champagne yeast towards the end as well oh, okay uh and then towards the end we started feeding it some simple sugars to mm. keep the yeast going um just to coach it up there so it's just all about monitoring it closely and yeah, checking yeah. the progress. But I mean, I've made sixteen percent beers before with just normal American ale yeast, mm. so it's it's a matter of yeah, just treating it right, really. Yeah. And um, what are some of the more memorable beers that you've brewed over the years uh, that have a, a fond place in your heart? Uh, well, I mean, the sixteen percent of that I just mentioned, Boumaye. That's uh, we've got to talk about Boumaye. Yeah, that's definitely one of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely one of them. Um, that was the beer that was, uh, it started out in, its conception was a, a Belgian, a Belgian Imperial Stout. Mm. Um, and it was, yeah, it was meant to be, uh, it was meant to be big, but uh, I, I, I don't think I had planned for it to be 16%. Uh, but what happened was that the Belgian yeast had potted out sort of, uh, sort of early in the ferment and wasn't very good. So mm. I just added some, uh, some normal, normal ale yeast. Um, and that took off and it fermented up, but it didn't ferment quite enough. It was still quite, quite high in gravity at, after the ferment. Um, so uh, I added some uh, some amylase enzymes to get it going again. Yeah. And I imagine that would. Uh, I think it has stopped at like 1060 or something like that for memory. So it's really high. Okay. Uh, and then the, the enzymes started working, and it fermented down to almost zero. Ooh. <laughs> so it got it got very very big. Okay. I'd so Bume is a brute beer. Uh, you could say that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's low carb. Yeah. yeah. It's a sixteen percent low carb beer. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. You need to stick it on the label. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. True. 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 Come yeah. <laughs> the hot new trend. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think, for memory, uh, I don't think I actually ever planned on barrel aging it either. No, I take that back. We did. No, we did. It was always meant to be barrel aged. Mm. Uh, but it certainly needed the barrel aging after that fermentation. It was it was it was very rough. It was very it was because, just hot and boozy. Yeah, uh, hot and boozy, and uh, I wouldn't go as far as saying it's dry. Yeah. I mean, even though it fermented to zero, if you do the math, uh, because the alcohol is lighter than water, mm. the sugar content is still quite high. Yeah. So it's not like it's, it's it's it doesn't taste dry. No, it doesn't. But it 
yeah, it was quite, it was quite, it was big. <laughs> it was big. It was intensely flavored, let's put it like that. Uh, but yeah, two years in barrels mellowed it out nicely. Um, made it a lot smoother. Uh, yeah, a lot more drinkable. And what made you think about freezing, Bumay? So that came about because uh, the, the bright tanks at Renaissance, uh, the, the, the racking arm that we would bottle out of, sat sort of a good 15 centimeters above the floor in, ah. in, the, in the brights. So you'd always have like 100, 150 liters of beer sitting under there. Yeah. Uh, and because it had come straight out of barrels, there was quite a lot of slush in there. Yeah. So we couldn't just, sometimes you would just hook over and just bottle from, from the bottom. But yeah. uh, we didn't want to do that here because it was, there, was, there was a bit of yeast in there from the barrel. So we put it out in kicks and then uh, we thought, what are we going to do with these? And uh, at the time we used a uh, commercial cold store in Blenheim. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they also had a commercial freezer. Brilliant. So a big, a big giant free freezing warehouse. Um, and it was around the time where BrewDog was making the, the penguin. Uh, the the end of history? No, the, the, what oh, they called it? Thermo the thermonuclear penguin? Yeah, yeah, I think that was one. Um, yeah, that was maybe the first one, I remember that. Yeah, the that was the first one, yeah. So we thought, well, just do that. So we kicked it out and we stuck a pallet of kicks out in, in this warehouse. We started out with six kicks from memory. So there must have been a lot of beer left under that racking up. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we stocked that out in the, in the, in the, in the freezing yeah. warehouse uh, and then more or less forgot about it. Um, every three months or so we would remember about it and bring it out. Uh, and basically just leave the kegs to thaw and then draw off the beer from the keg into a new keg. So you... So what happens is mm. that, that uh, the, the, the alcohol and the sugars will melt before the water yep. when it's frozen. So the whole, the whole keg is frozen solid. And when it thaws, the alcohol and the sugar will thaw first. Yeah. And the, 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 the water will stay as ice in the keg. So we can draw off the, the, the beer, which is now stronger, yep. into a new keg. And then we put that keg into the freezer again and do it all over again. When you chuck the kegs in that freezer, were you not worried about them expanding and exploding? Or did you simply just... I didn't actually even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> they never did. I mean, obviously a keg can take a lot of pressure. Yeah. And it's, uh, um, the beer wasn't carbonated. Yeah. So okay. there would have been less pressure to start with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and fine. the cake, the cakes weren't full to the brim either, so they had some headspace. Okay, so it's better headspace. Yeah. yeah. So we we did that maybe five, six, seven times before we stopped, and then uh, yeah, bottled it from there. Crazy. Yeah. But delicious. Mm. Yeah, it's good beer. It's good beer. <laughs> um, what was the first beer that you put in barrels? Uh, the first beer we put in barrels was a uh, batch eighteen, as I mentioned before. Mm. So yeah, that was uh, meant to be a, a very special beer, and it was a very special beer. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we brewed the biggest imperial stout we could. Um, we added some jaggery and some other sugars to, to get the gravity up, uh, and then fermented it, and then uh, into barrels from there. And the barrels we got from, uh, from Epic, um, they had used them for, they used to make a beer, what was it called? It was just barrel aged Armageddon, I think. I think that's all they called it. Um, so so it, was, it, was, it was Armageddon that they had in barrels. Yeah. Right? And 
I guess the idea was they were trying to uh, to uh, recreate the original IPAs that traveled in the barrel. Yeah. I remember they stocked some barrels on the entire on the ferry, ferry, ferry <laughs> and just sailed them across the strait for, for a few weeks Yeah. Uh, to recreate the journey to India. Um, well, good marketing, at least. It, it was marketing, yeah, more, more than anything, actually. But yeah, so they used them for that, and then they had made a uh, stout with a Thornbridge mm. when Kelly was still working at Thornbridge. Yeah. Um, so they made a collab with Kelly slash Thornbridge, um, and that stout had been in the barrels. But it, so the barrels were brand new; they'd only seen those two beers, mm. and they'd only been used for maybe three or four months in total. Uh, and then we bought them off Epic, and then we filled batch eighteen in there. But because they were still so fresh, there was still a lot of flavor left in the oak. Most of the barrels that we get, they're quite flavorless because the winery has sucked all the flavor out of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, these were very bourbony. They were American oak. So. Lovely. Yeah. And also on barrels, um, wild fermentation. Yeah. Uh, so were you quite inspired by the beers of Brussels and Flanders? And have you drank a lot of those? Belgian wild ferment beers? Yeah, definitely, definitely. But probably more so, we were more inspired like by brewers like uh, uh, like Russian River and and other mm. uh, modern brewers doing doing barrel aged beers uh, yeah. and barrel aged sours. Um, we certainly didn't make traditional lambic to start with. Yeah. Uh, all all the beers that we put in barrels for much much bigger, like eight, nine, ten percent um, barrel aged beers. So the first sour we did was uh, the Grand Cru, mm. which uh, started out as a uh, Belgian quadruple uh, with uh, Sultanas, uh, was beer that was called the Sultan, yeah, um, which we brewed many many years ago, <laughs> 2010. We would have brewed that, uh, and then we split that batch in half, and half of it went into Pinot Noir barrels, and uh, we added. A cocktail of pediococcus and bread and mysteries and whatnot, and left it there for a year or so, and then that became the original Grand Cru. Where do you get the bugs? Uh, the bugs back then were all from labs, so it was all white labs and white yeast. Yeah. Um, nowadays we don't really, or we don't pitch any any commercial bugs. We just rely on what's what's in the barrels. Yeah. So you've just got your just yeah. house ecosystem. Yeah. Of yeah whatever's living in there and going on. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the beers that a lot of people look forward to each year is your Fajoa. Yeah. And has that changed much over the years? Yeah, that's definitely a beer that's changed. Um, so, I mean, uh, that started out in 2013 was the first mention of that. And uh, I mean, as I mentioned, the beers that we were making back then were in the barrels were all <laughs> quite strong. Mm. So it actually started out, we brewed a, a triple um, that we were going to sour in the oh, barrels. Um, it kind of got left and forgotten about, um, so we didn't use it as, as, a, as a triple, but it formed the base of the first Wild Fajor. Um So yeah, the beer itself was probably close to 9% um, in the barrel, and then the fruit would have actually diluted it a bit, so it ended up being 8.5% uh, oh. the, the first Fajor. So, oh no, I take that back, it was 9.5%. Nine and a half. Huh. Yeah. 
<laughs> so it was a big one. It was a big yeah, one. Totally different there. Yeah, totally. Uh, I wouldn't say totally different. I mean, uh, it was still sour, and uh, and uh, the fijoa obviously still dominated. Mm. Um, so we still use the exact same amount of fijoa to beer. Yeah. Um, but the beer, the base beer itself, over the year has been refined a bit, and it's come down in alcohol. In the last the last few years, it's all been hovering around six and a half to six point seven percent. And have there been any changes in how you prepare the fijoas or where you harvest nah. them? Or nah. So the fijoas we've always uh, used organic fijoas. Uh, we don't really do much in terms of washing them, other than just washing off any dirt that might be on there. Yeah. Um, and then we just cut them in half and put them into the beer. Yeah. We used to just put them into the bunghole of the barrels. Uh, but getting uh, getting the beer out and more importantly getting the fijoas out afterwards was too much of a mess. Um, so now we uh, we use uh, fruiting tanks. So we chop the fruit in half, put it in the, in the tank, and then we add the beer from the barrel that has already been aged for two years at that point in time mm. onto the fruit. Easier to add the beer to the fruit than the fruit to the beer. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. oh, the actual um, the the yeast and organisms that are sitting on the skin of the fijoa will also be a big part of the flavour. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the beer is already fermented fully at that time, when we add the fruit. But uh, the sugars from the fruit will ferment, and uh, the the wild yeast and bacteria will start working on on anything that's left over in the beer as well. Yeah, it's always just such a just complex, layered, yeah, beautiful beer. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the past year or so, you haven't been able to travel or go overseas. No, and, no. Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, but generally you you would go to a few international festivals each year, right? Yeah, yeah, I would probably generally in the past I would have travelled overseas at least three or four times yeah. a year for for beer events. Yeah. And are you still getting much beer um, sent offshore? Yeah, no, I, the, the whole pandemic has not hurt our export programme in any way, I think. It's... Uh, um, it's changed the, the split of what we're sending. Like we're not sending many cakes or anything. Yep. Um, it's mainly packaged product, but uh, other than that, it hasn't really changed. Which are your main overseas markets? Australia is by far the biggest, um, uh, just because it's so close. Um, and they love kiwi beer over there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, maybe not as much as they used to. When we, we started importing to Australia within six months of starting the brewery, uh, and back then, I think it's safe to say that the Australians were a fair bit behind the, yeah. the Kiwi scene. Yeah. I um, also think it's fair to say that they've now caught up. <laughs> Absolutely. And they're, they're, they're doing some really good beers over there. Um, yeah, I think that... But I think because we started so early, uh, we've got a fairly good brand following over there. People remember us from back in the day and they still buy our beer. Yeah, I think these days um, New Zealand drinkers maybe a lot of drinkers don't realise how great Australian beer is these days. Yeah. And there's definitely a bit of a sort of uh, anti-Australian sentiment, which is maybe because there's lots of sports fans and yeah, little sure. brother syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but certainly what I am in Australia, people are, sort of, there's a real reverence to New Zealand beer yeah. over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, for sure. New Zealand beer in Australia is definitely much, much bigger than Australian beer is New Zealand. Yeah. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I mean, you guys have started importing some, but prior to that, it has not been much that has been coming the other way, has it? No, no, not at all. I and, mean, other than little creatures that which is owned by Lion, obviously. Uh, 
And the, the beers that we bring in, even then, it's it's small amounts. Yeah. Because we, well, a lot of the time, if we're bringing in beers from like Hop Nation or Deeds, uh, they're generally hop forward beers. Yeah. And we want to sell them out straight yeah, away, yeah, yeah. so we would drink them as yeah. as the bruising's ended. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're bringing over some incredible hype beers. Like uh, we've got a boat rocker shipment arriving this yep. week. Yeah. And who. I sort of think as Boat Rocker as being almost the eight wide of Melbourne. I see a lot of similarities. Between We're very similar in many ways, yes, yeah. yeah. And uh, and yeah, well, in previous shipments, we brought over some some real hype beers of theirs, yeah. um, and they've kind of sat in our chiller for yeah. a year. Oh, Actually, right. sold out in Melbourne in like a week. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone's excited, but I guess people haven't heard of them here. Yeah, yeah. Know about how great they are. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, it's uh, we got such an abundance of, of great beer in New Zealand, you know. So it's it's very hard for any imported product to come in here because it's competing yeah. with a very high standard in in the local scene. There's got to be something different. Yeah, I don't see mm. any points in importing, you know, just a a nice pale ale from no. the California. No. Bother. No. So yeah, I think no. beers that are really innovative and interesting yeah. and worthwhile importing. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned before about new releases used to be fewer and more far in between. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think if we think about the earlier days yes. of good beer in New Zealand, yeah. and there are just these tentpole beers, these iconic beers, things like Pot Kettle Black, yeah. for example, or Armageddon that we're talking about, yeah. or Knife Party. And, yeah. and these days, there are just so many bloody beers coming out constantly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I wonder if if there are these great beers that kind of get overlooked by drinkers just because they're just in a sea of new yeah. releases that come out every single week. Yeah. Often even a single brewer yeah, yeah. will release five or six beers in a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that's a big risk of something really great being lost in that sea. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's all good beer, I'm not saying that. Mm. But it is all much the same kind of beer, you know, I mean, it's... Yep. It's another hazy and another hazy and another hazy and another hazy. People love buying hazies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's rare that you you would find something quite innovative in that space that, that actually truly is has the, the longevity to become a core range beer, I think. Yeah. I mean, if it did, then the brew would just make it again and again yeah. and again. Uh, what are some? Oh, we need to wrap up shortly because we need to yeah. get back to brewing. <laughs> um, what are some of your favourite overseas festivals and events to attend? Um, I mean, there's quite a few. Uh, one we used to go to uh, every year is, uh, is the Firestone Walker Festival in in California. Mm. Uh, I'm Paso Robles, which is quite far away from anything major, uh, but it's, it's a really good festival. Um, just really good vibe and uh, uh, just good fun and people coming from, from everywhere in the world. Um, awesome. Uh, what else? We go to one in Beijing every year, or we used to go to one in Beijing every year that is sort of very similar, uh, but <laughs> with a Chinese vibe. Um, but yeah, I guess from my point of view, the best ones are the ones where, where brewers come from all over the world and um, you get a, you get like the crew that has been around for, for a while and you see some old friends and stuff uh, in, in the brewing industry. That's always good fun. I think Matefest was good for that, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I never made it to Matefest, but Matefest would be uh, be very, very similar. Yeah. I mean, I know that they structured it around uh, um, uh, similar festivals overseas. So Moondog also goes to the one in China. Yeah. Um, which, which is how I know the Moon God 
Moondog guys quite well. Yeah. Um, been over there for the last four or five years. Yeah, I think that is a great thing when you go to a beer festival that is the people behind the beer that are there pouring the beer yeah. for the drinkers yeah, to exactly, go and eat. Yeah. And, and you'll be at Beervana? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, well, lastly, uh, let's. Um, oh, second to last, I'm going to have a final question. But before that, uh, how's the, uh, the barrel works going? Your new tap room? Yeah, barrel works is going okay. Uh, I mean, as uh, we mentioned before, uh, we opened up four months before uh, uh, the first lockdown hit. Uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> timing-wise, I mean, uh, we got one good summer out of it then, uh, and then uh, uh, it sort of all went went, went south. But I mean, it, 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 overall though, it, it's it's been a lot better than than you would have expected in the cool. in in late March uh, 2020. Yeah. Um, uh, it hasn't been too bad at all. I mean, the, because the we haven't seen the the overseas tourism that we that we did in the beginning. Yeah, we did, we did have a lot of uh, overseas people that uh, that knew our beer from overseas and, ah. and have tried it overseas. And, um, and the location is a, to a touristy it. area, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But it's also mainly a domestic tourism area, you would say, you know. Um, yeah, I suppose so. So, uh, on long weekends and holidays, there's, there's a lot of Kiwis that go up to that area and, and, and holiday. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we always knew that summers would be cranking and winters would be quiet. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening. I mean, winters are probably better than we expected. Mm. Um, we never even knew if we were going to be open for winter. We might just close up for two or three months. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's definitely worthwhile to be open. Um, oh, well, it's amazing that drinkers can go and have a place to visit. Yeah. Of course, you've got the little um, uh, shop here at the brewery where people can buy beers, but just so nice that that's a real yeah. home of Eight Wide, that people can yeah, come yeah. and get some great food and try different beers. And yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really good from a from 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 a branding perspective and from a, a product perspective that that you got this at least one spot where where you know the beer is always going to be served as you intended it to be and uh, yeah it's always going to be fresh it's always going to be good yeah i think yeah branding and customer experience is a big thing actually mm. because if a if a customer sees a six pack of eight wide beers just in the local supermarket or when they're shopping yeah. online yeah. and they've got the connected memory of when they perhaps met the brewer at a beer festival or yeah, when yeah. they visited the brew pub yeah. uh, it's going to have uh, yeah, good connotations and memories yeah. lastly what would be your desert island beer <laughs> you're stranded for the rest of your entire life but you've got a magic endless tap of beer it's the only thing you can drink forever just one beer. Just one beer. Yeah, just one beer. Um, every occasion, every season. I would probably go way back now. Pick something like Pliny the Elder. Yeah, okay. I'd pick something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, if if it was more than one beer, I'd definitely <laughs> uh, I'd put one of their barrelless beers on that list. Yeah. Not necessarily because they're the best beers in the world right now, but uh, you know, nostalgia plays a lot. Yeah. Plays a lot of influence in my decision making. <laughs> Definitely. I'm a very, uh, <laughs> a very nostalgic person, <laughs> and absolutely. I mean, those beers were the beers that really opened, you know, my eyes for what beer could be, and they're still obviously world-class beers. So. And did you take a trip to uh, visit Russian River and those breweries? Yeah, I've been there a few times. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I used to, whenever we went back to Denmark, we, were, we would always go via California and, and stay there three or four days, just for that simple pur purpose of, of going around to breweries. 
it's such important research. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think it comes up often that there'll be a, a new hype beer style that people are all talking about, but yeah. brewers will make this beer, but they've actually never drank one of these beers. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So yeah, it's so important yeah, to get to the source. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you certainly don't have to go to America anymore. The, the, the world is so small that if something new comes out, then uh, it's a matter of a few months before people here will brew it and you yeah. can just try, try local. Yeah. Some, which is usually going to be world class anyways. Yeah. Well, cheers to great beer in New Zealand. Absolutely. And uh, thanks so much for the chats. Thank you. Thanks we'll, for coming. <laughs> we'll get back to brewing. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And the main takeaway should be that you all need to go up to the 8 Wild Barrel Works and, uh, and sample some of the amazing 8 Wild beers they've got up there. Uh, if you have any feedback about the show, I'd love to hear it. Feel free to get in touch. Probably the best way might be on the NZ Beer Jerks Facebook page, where we've got a fantastic community of a few thousand people that chat about all things beer and brewing. You can just type NZ Beer Jerks into Facebook to find that. And remember, you can go to www.beerjerk.co.nz for all of your beer needs. Until next time, cheers.